0: Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. I think we have one of our most modern discussions ever, right now, because when we discuss Karach, we're really talking about the state of the Jewish people today and really the state of the world today. What did Korach say that was so utterly eternal, so utterly modern and relevant to our understanding of each other and just what it means to be alive in this world today? So let's let's appreciate who Korach is, just give a brief background. He was absolutely one of the greatest among the Jewish people. He was a, a very, very close relative of Moshe and Aaron. Not only that, but he was wise. Not only that, but he was among those very, very select few whose job it was to carry the the Ark of the Covenant. And so that was really the most holy elite among the Jewish people, and he had that role as well. Not only that, but he was the, I think, the single richest person among the Jewish people. He had dozens and dozens of donkeys packed loaded with the keys to treasure chests okay <laughs> just take a moment to appreciate that normally the end of that sentence should have been dozens and dozens of donkeys loaded with gold no 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 that's not it loaded with the keys to treasure chests so he was holy he was wise he was from incredible lineage He had all of these attributes, and yet he meets a horrible end. So how are we to understand what exactly went wrong when he had so much going right for him? Okay, so he creates basically a civil war among the Jewish people. So what is so utterly modern about Korach. In fact, it's probably only gotten louder in the modern age. He said, All of us are holy. All of us are holy. And so, Moshe, you're taking too much upon yourself because all of us have the truth. Okay, so now, now, now we're kind of getting to the discussion right now. So, how do you balance the truth of what Korach is saying? which is that all of us were holy, all of us were at Mount Sinai, all of us received the truth. We have a soul within us, which is a piece of God. So that is true. And Korach says such a thing. But at the same time, does that mean, therefore, that truth is whatever I say it is? In other words, moving forward, does that mean that I get to decide now what the truth is. Or or does there remain an overarching truth, which is symbolized by Moshe? Moshe then represents the truth, and you can't go against the ultimate truth. So the reason why I think that this is such a modern discussion is because as society is becoming increasingly empowered in terms of one's individual choices, right? Just look at the landscape of the world today. You know, one can even decide on their pronoun. We never had that before. I can decide, as someone who's born with male body parts, I can decide whether I want to be addressed as it, she, they, them. That is now, in current society, my right. In other words, what you see in that example is the increasing empowerment of the individual. And so as each individual is given more and more room to decide the ultimate truth, what happens to the ultimate truth? <laughs> Does it go away? Does it exist alongside of it? Does the ultimate truth, is there an ultimate truth? So of course, Taurus says, yes, there is. So let me frame this in another way. You see, we live, I live in America, so I'm gonna put it in terms of American democracy, but really, it's just, what I'm talking about is just people getting along with each other. And that's this word, shalom. And in America, like I went to public school in New York City. And the example that I always like to to give is you know, this was very sort of emblematic of my, my education growing up. Let's say you're in, I don't know, third grade or whatever it is, and the teacher gives out a poem, and then the teacher has everyone read it and then starts a discussion in the class. What's this poem about? So one person says, it's about an elephant. And another person says, it's about France. And another person says, it's about avocados, right? And the teacher says to each person, you're right, and you're right, and you're right. And everybody's right. And, and so America is quite fantastic in that it's given room for everybody to be right. Toward the end that everyone should get along with each other and not try to kill each other. So that is shalom. That's peace. But the question is, when you have peace like that, what happens to the truth? Does the truth just disappear? Can you have peace and truth at the same time? And if you do, how do you do it? So now listen to this. There's a medrash, one of the great Russian, and it records a conversation behind the scenes when God is about to create the human being. You ready for this? So we've got like a behind-the-scenes transcript, and God is pulling the different attributes, and he asks chesed, kindness, should I create the human being? And chesed, kindness, says yes. Because human beings are going to do nice things for each other. Okay, great. Then God asks tzedek, righteousness. Should I create the human being? And tzedek says, righteousness says yes. Because human beings are going to establish court systems and things like that. And so, yes. And then God asks shalom, peace. Should I create the human being? And Shalom says, no, no, don't do it, don't, no. They're just going to fight with each other. And then God asks, peace, should I create the human being? And peace, Emes, says, no, they're, they're, they're going to lie. So now listen to this, here comes the end. What does God do? He takes the attribute of peace, right? Because it's a deadlock, it's two against two. So God takes the naysayer, truth, And he throws truth to the ground. This is what the Medrash says. The Katskarevi asks a fantastic question. He says, you know, if it's a deadlock, two against two, and the two no votes are truth and peace, why didn't God throw peace to the ground? Isn't that an awesome question? God could have just as easily thrown peace to the ground. Why did he throw truth to the ground? That's the Kutzke Rebbe's question. And the Kutzke Rebbe answers because truth can't be compromised. You can't water down truth. If something is 99% true, it's not true. And in order to have peace, you often have to compromise. And you often have to water down truth. And so truth cannot be in the presence, cannot exist in a way that it's compromised. Therefore, God threw truth to the ground. And that's that's a really interesting idea that truth is not subject to a majority vote. You know, the Medrash says that at the time, the early days of Avraham Avinu, that Avraham was, if you had a scale, Avraham was on one side of the scale. Any ready for this? The entire world was on the other side of the scale. Like, how could Avraham continue being just this, this lone voice of truth in the world? But he did. He did. So truth is not subject to a majority vote. And I often think of this visual, which I think is really striking. You know, it used to be when we went on long trips back in the day, and when, when I say back in the day, I mean thousands of years ago, we'd have to cross deserts a lot, even vast deserts. And when people tried to navigate, they would navigate by the stars. They wouldn't navigate by, say, sand dunes. Even though sand dunes could be like these giant structures. Like, no one would say, you see that big sand dune over there? You take a right there, and now that one in the distance, when you get to that, you take a left. Do you know why? Because at nighttime, the winds come and they blow away the entire landscape and they rearrange it. The stars, not the case. The stars remain in their place. And so you can navigate according to the stars. And to me, that's very representative of kind of like what it means to be a Torah Jew in contemporary society. Because you have different waves of the morality of the day. And those are like big sand dunes. And they can seem like these giant structures that are permanent and are never going to go away. And that you can navigate according to them. And yet the reality is is that unless they're in sync with the Torah itself, even if they last hundreds of years, they're going to blow away. So when we navigate our lives, what are we looking toward? The sand dunes or toward the stars? That's kind of the question. But now we have to do the other side of the question, which is that we have to get along with each other. (laughs) We have to get along with each other. So this is the great art form and the great skill to be a spiritually sensitive, present person. How do you maintain this attribute of truth, while at the same time creating peace and living peace. So, so one thing that Reb Shlomo pointed out that I thought was really interesting is that peace does not mean that everyone has to be the same. That, that's kind of what people think, that everyone's got to agree. So in order to have peace, which means I I have to stop being me in order for there to be peace. But you can have lots of differences and still have peace. So true peace makes room for each other's differences and respects them. But at the same time, truth doesn't disappear from the picture. And the example that he gives, which I think is a beautiful one, is musical notes. So, so by piece, not everything has to be the same. Imagine looking at a musical score with all the different notes and you say, they're all disagreeing, all these notes are disagreeing. I want there to be uniformity. So you know what would happen to Mozart? Here, this would be the new Mozart. Here, here's what happens to Beethoven. Here, all the music of the world all of a sudden disappears. So with music, what you have is you have differences but at the same time, you have harmony. You see? So differences can coexist with each other and even create something beautiful. And that's the example that Reb Shlomo gives. So again, the great challenge is, how can peace and truth coexist with each other? So Karach takes on Moshe Rabbeinu. Korach says, we all have the truth. Who are you to impose the truth on us? But Moshe wasn't imposing anything. The greatness of Moshe, the reason why Moshe was the greatest prophet ever and will remain the greatest prophet ever, according to Jewish law, even when the Messiah comes, Mashiach, he will not be a greater prophet than Moshe right? That's our tradition. That's what Judaism states. Even Mashiach is not going to be a greater prophet than Moshe, which means the Torah remains for all time. It remains true for all time. And of course, everybody knows this, but I'll just tell you because it's just a beautiful illustration of this. The word for truth, emes or emet, is spelled aleph, mem, taf. What's so fascinating about that arrangement of letters, it's three letters, The first letter of the olive base, the middle letter of the olive base, and the last letter of the olive base, right, of the Hebrew alphabet. Isn't that fascinating that the word truth is a continuum for beginning to end? Because like the Katsukah Rebbe is saying, if something is true, it's 100% true and it's true forever. And you see that reflected in the arrangement of the letters itself. Remember, when God created the world, he created it out of the Hebrew letters, it's called Lashana Kodesh, right? The holy tongue, and as Reb Shlomo said so beautifully, so poetically one time, when the wind rustles through the trees, the sound that it makes is in Hebrew, right? Just, just to tell you how it's the the language of creation, and that's just another reflection of it. So Moshe wasn't adding anything. The greatness of Moshe was that he was like a clear lens, a clear window pane, through which. God just shined his message to creation. That's, that's the greatness. So so when Korach sort of like accuses Moshe of trying to impose his will on the people, Korach, what are you talking about? Now, I want to say something in defense of Korach. You know, when we left Egypt, we left with gold and silver. So the Jewish people had money in the desert. They, they didn't really have anything to spend it on, but, but they, had, they had gold and silver. Not only that, but the Medrash says that when the man, the mana from heaven fell, that it fell with gemstones. Isn't that interesting? Not a very well-known Medrash. So there was quite a amount of wealth among the Jewish people. So with that in mind, li- listen to the following. Korach symbolizes argumentation. And he's sort of like this cautionary tale about how if you allow arguments to foment in a community, in a family, it can rip the entire family or community apart. So it was this like very, very striking warning for all time to take argumentation very, very seriously. And its negative consequences very, very seriously, and to address them when they arise. So that's something everyone's got to learn. You, you can't let th- this type of division just kind of keep on going on its own because it, it, it's a cancer. It's a terrible cancer, and it, it'll, 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 it'll kill. It'll kill society. Okay. So with that in mind, if Karach was destined, so to speak, I don't know if he was destined, but If he was destined to argue about something, here's my question why not argue about money? (laughs) Money is a great thing to argue about. People love to argue about money. And there is certainly money there to argue about. Isn't it interesting that he creates his argument about who can be closest to God? I mean, I see something very, very beautiful there. And I see something, like if you're just going to take an x-ray of the Jewish people, the fact that that was the source of argumentation, I want to be closest to God. I want that. There's something very, very pure and beautiful there. Not only that, but the Berdichever brings, in the name of the Zohar, no less, you ready for this? Something very, very surprising. Now, Korach, the source of his argumentation was that he wanted to be the Kohen Gadol, the high priest of Israel. That, that's the position that he wanted. And he felt because of who his father was in the birth order and everything like that, that it was due to him. And technically speaking, by the way, he was correct. But God had another plan. God said, no, 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 I wanted to be Moshe. I would rather God said, I want it to be Aaron. So, you know, if you're a little bit cynical, you go, oh, that's like really convenient. The leader's brother gets the second most important position among the nation. Yeah, that sounds like nepotism to me. I'm sorry. Especially if you, let's just get out the family tree right now. Who's next in line? Me and your brother's getting it and he's not next in line. Excuse me. Excuse me. So, you know, you can sympathize with Korach a little bit. Just in terms of him feeling like there was an injustice that was being committed. Of course, the simple answer is, why was Aaron appointed? Not because Moshe wanted Aaron appointed and God answered Moshe's prayer. This is a point that the Orach makes, by the way. I want to say that again. Aaron was not appointed... Because Moshe wanted Aaron appointed, and God answered Moshe's prayer for Aaron to be appointed. That's not what happened. God wanted Aaron. Period. End. Simple. It's God's world, God's doing it all. God wanted Aaron. Okay, great. Well, Karach sees things a little bit differently. Now, let me tell you what the Berdichever Rebbe says. He brings this amazing, amazing thing. Had Korach not created this big civil war, essentially, this big machlochus, this big argument, there was a new position that was going to be created among the Jewish people called the Levi Gadol. (laughs) Korach was a member of the tribe of Levi. And he would have been the Levi Gadol. In other words, there was this great position that was destined for him. But because he, you know, caused all of this disturbance, he blew it. But now let me tell you something else. Something that I heard in the name of the Ari. You know, one of the prayers that we say quite a bit, it's the it's the psalm of the day for Shabbos. Okay. And it's got, it's got these three words in it. Listen very carefully. I'm going to pronounce it like very carefully. Listen to the last letter. And then I'm going to spell it out either way in a moment. But listen to the last letter of these three words and see what it spells. Sadik, katamar, yif. Tzadik ends with kuf. Kat- katamar ends with resh. Kufresh, Yifrah, Ches, that spells Korach. <laughs> and it means that a righteous person, a tzaddik, is going to blossom like a date palm. And the Ari derives from that the fact that tzaddik Katamar Yifrah, that the last letter of each, spells the name Korach, that in the future Korach is going to have this grand position of being koin because he wanted it so badly. And in the end, he actually gives up his entire life for it. Now, what was Korach's thinking? What was Korach's thinking? Why, why did he get so twisted and blinded? Why did he have so much confidence that he could go up against Moshe? Well, I'll tell you what the Medrash says. It says that he had like this level of prophecy, and he saw in the future, and he saw that his children were going to be kahanam, were going to be these very, very great people. And he said to himself, if my children are going to be so great, that's proof that I too am very great, and therefore I must be right. So that was a miscalculation. So, if you want to evaluate your true level, here's the lesson I take from that teaching: Don't look to your children; look at yourself. If, if you want, if you want to take a litmus test of where you're holding, look in the mirror. Don't look at your family album. All right? Because you got to get yourself right. You got to get yourself right. If you get your good, if you get your children right, it's good. It's definitely good. But you know what? make sure you get yourself right. Well, we're still not done yet because we've got this amazing question right now, which is how can truth and peace exist alongside of each other? How can you have a community where you have differences of opinion and yet at the same time, truth doesn't go out the window? So, I think that there's an interesting, you know, to get a little sociological with you about the Jewish people right now, especially in America. I think that there's an interesting thing that you can contrast the Jewish community in America to say the Jewish community in England or South Africa, just to give two examples. And I'm sure it's more than just England and South Africa, what I'm about to say in those, in those places, you have one central Jewish organization that runs the synagogues there for the most part, and that's Orthodox. And the people who attend the Orthodox shuls there aren't necessarily Orthodox. They'll drive to shul on on Shabbos. Maybe they keep kosher, maybe they don't keep kosher, wherever they're holding, right? But there's one central organization, and then everyone goes to that central organization. Now, in America, you have something very, very different. You have a lot of different, different denominations within Judaism which believe very, very different things. And so the advantage that, in, in my opinion, the advantage of sort of like the European structure is you have a concept, a classical Messorah. The Messorah means to hand it down from the generations. So the Judaism that they're practicing is the Judaism that was practiced hundreds and thousands of years ago, back to Mount Sinai. In other words, that's the lineage that's been in place up until the last few hundred years. So whether you are practicing the various elements of the faith or not, at least there's a clarity as to what the message is and what it's always been. In America, it's very different because you've got a lot of different denominations, each telling you that Judaism believes in something substantially different. So what happens to truth in in that situation, right? Or our classical understanding of truth in that situation? It's, 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 a, it's, it's very, very different. You know, I think that it's so important that there's peace. It's so important that there's peace. And I'll, I'll give you an example of what the Talmud says. And I believe it was King Ahaz. And he was really considered like one of the worst, worst kings ever of the Jewish people, big idol worshiper. And it was definitely one of the low points in Jewish history. During that time, the Talmud points out, during his reign, the Jewish people prospered financially. Like things were like economically really, really good. Now, that's striking because at other times when we've hit spiritual lows in our history, there have been famines and it hasn't rained. And that was sort of God's reaction to you know the fact that we didn't have it together. So he was trying to inspire us, you know, kind of tough love, trying to inspire us to get our spiritual act together. And then the, the bounty would also come with our you know, being sort of chiropractically aligned, so to speak, spiritually with, with the Torah and the mitzvahs. So it's striking then that during King Ahaz's reign that there was prosperity if he was this big idol worshiper. And the Talmud gives a very, very fascinating answer, very important answer. He says, do you know why there was prosperity even given like the idol worship? of the time, because the Jewish people were all getting along with each other. Because there was achdus, because there was unity among the Jewish people, we ourselves made this vessel where we could hold the divine shefa, the heavenly bounty, because there was peace among us. So again, this tension between truth and between peace how do you enact truth? How do you teach truth? How do you practice truth? While well, at the same time, allowing the people around you the room to discover it and the room that they need to feel respected in their journey. That's, that, that is our question. And, you know, I was, I was learning this a few days ago. And this, I don't know who this person is. I just know his name is Yosef. But he said something that blew my mind. Are you ready for this? Moshe, what do we say about Moshe? We say, Torah, Moshe. And we say, Torah, Emet. Do you know what that means? Moshe is the symbol of truth. And now you're ready who is his brother and best friend in the world aaron and you know what aaron symbolizes peace as it says in perke avos be like the disciples of aaron who are rodef shalom run after peace so now think about that let's just take just hear that again Moshe is truth and Aaron is peace and they are the best friends in the entire world. So if you think for a moment, if you think for a moment that these two things are absolutely irreconcilable, that we're never going to have truth and peace at the same time, consider for a moment that Moshe and Aaron were best friends and they symbolize respectively truth and peace. That means it can be done. And I'll give you an an amazing example from the Torah of of this dynamic in play. Moshe is missing. He's supposed to come down from Mount Sinai. He hasn't come down. The people are panicking. Remember, it says in Gomorrah Shabbos that God was testing the Jewish people like, my understanding of this teaching is God wanted to know if the Jewish people understood that they had a direct relationship with God himself. And that they didn't need a go-between. They didn't need an, you know, a, they didn't need anyone, basically. If, you, if you're there and you got God and you do, you're good. It's you and God. You're good. So how are the Jewish people going to react, God wondered, if I remove Moshe from their midst? So he had the Satan show an image to the Jewish people of Moshe in a coffin. That was the test. Are the Jewish people going to say, all right, this is tragic, we've lost the the, the greatest prophet that, that that ever was and ever will be, but God, we have you. How are they gonna react? That's what God wanted to know. And you know how we reacted? We said, oh, we we really need someone to substitute for Moshe. How about this golden calf? We hadn't reached that level of spiritual maturity yet where we felt confidence in our relationship with God. And so we manufactured this this go-between, okay? And we didn't really think of it as an idol, even though it's called the great sin of idol worship. But the commentators say that, you know, even though there's a clear passage in the in the Torah that says that the Jewish people made the golden calf and said, this is the God who took us out of Egypt, all the commentators say no one believed that. <laughs> Which is kind of nice, kind of funny in a weird way. But we we did feel as though we needed this sort of like, go-between on some level, and since we felt like we needed any go-between, that was the sin of idol worship. Do you understand? Okay. So, but here's the point. Aaron has confidence that Moshe Rabbeinu is coming down. And in fact, the Jewish people miscounted. And by the way, that's one of the reasons why we blow the shofar in Elul every single day so that we accurately count till Rosh Hashanah. It's one of the reasons why we blow the shofar. But anyway, Aaron knew. And Aaron says, you know something? If I can do a delay tactic, then, you know, Moshe will come and everything will be okay. So when the people come to Aaron and they say, we want to make this golden calf, Aaron says, wait till tomorrow. There you see peace at work. Right? He doesn't say, what are you, you crazy? What are you doing? By the way, the person who did say, are you crazy? What are you doing? Was named Her, And you know what they did? They murdered him. They murdered him on the spot. That was Miriam and Kalev's son, by the way. Okay, one of the greatest people ever. And you you never hear about him because he got knocked off when he was young. In fact, in the war against Amalek, you know, there are certain people who hold up Moshe's arms in the air. Hur was one of them. Aaron was another, just to give you an idea of how huge Hur was, right? So Aaron knows that if he just like cancels this endeavor on the spot that there's going to be just a mob riot. So he chooses Shalom over emes. Okay, now the results were world class tragic. Because what happens in his trying to delay, thinking that, you know, Moshe's going to come down before they can build the golden calf? Building the golden calf wasn't his idea. It was their idea. But he's trying to delay them, thinking Moshe's going to come. So he says, okay, we'll do it tomorrow. Right? So he chooses Shalom over But But here's the bigger point. When Moshe comes down, and Moshe does come down, and he sees the golden calf, and he breaks the tablets, right? Why does Moshe break the tablets, by the way? Because... The tablets contain, this is the Gomorrah I'm telling you right now, the tablets contain the line, don't have any gods other than Hashem. So Moshe feels like if he can rip up the contract before it gets signed by the Jewish people, the Jewish people won't be subject to the destruction that will come from breaking the contract. So a lot of people don't understand Moshe smashing the tablets they think that it's an act of wrath on the part of Moshe against the people like you what are you doing you don't deserve these tablets and I'm gonna smash them and now you can't have them that's not what's going on the way the Talmud explains it is I am going to protect you I'm gonna rip up this thing before you sign it and that you're liable to all the punishment that's going to come from having broken this I'm going to save your lives right now by breaking these tablets. Okay, but what I'm really getting to is what does Moshe say to Aaron? What does truth say to peace when peace gets us into this pretty horrible situation? And you know what? The love between them never ceases. Not, how could you do this, Aaron? I'm never talking to you again. You betrayed everything. How could you go along with the crowd? What's the matter with you? We're not brothers anymore. I mean, do you see? Like, this is, what I'm talking about is really the most epic confrontation between truth and peace right now. Because if we didn't make the golden calf, Mashiach would have come. Do you understand? We're talking about that the end of days was on the line right here. So, so you know, you could imagine truth was furious at peace. Furious! So, what we have to do is maintain our integrity. Well having compassion and patience and sensitivity and respect for other people, and not allow that to be this internal contradiction that brings us to a place of anger, God forbid. And it doesn't mean giving up on truth, but it also means running after peace. In my own life, and I don't even know when it happened or how it happened exactly. But there was a point in my life where I stopped trying to convince people of things, where I just shared my understanding of what is true. And, and I, I saw that all of a sudden I was a way more effective communicator than I was when I was trying to debate people. And let me tell you something. When you're talking about Torah principles, you know, what we say is Torah Chayim. The Torah is a Torah of life. If someone wants to accept the Torah, it has implications on their life. It's not just that every November 4th or whatever it is, I go into a voting booth and I check this box instead of that box. It means that if I accept these principles, which are true, that it's going to have to really impact the decisions that I make on a daily basis throughout the day, throughout my life. And can I tell you something? Someone is only going to do that if they want to do that. <laughs> Otherwise, it's going to be a very short-lived little flirtation with with, with Torah. A person is really has to want to do that. Now, let me tell you the limitations of debate right now. My my father, it's his yurt site this week, these words should be a, an uplifting of his soul. And I uh, can't pray for him without praying for my mother, right? Right? So... God willing, they're rising up together. So, anyway, my father was a therapist, psychologist, and, you know, he did all sorts of therapy, including couples counseling. And one of the things that he raised us with is that you have to be careful, you have to resist the urge to win an argument. Don't try to win arguments. And what he said was, for every winner, there's a loser. And you know what? After you lose an argument or you lose a series of arguments and between friends, between husband and wife, right, between parent and children, after you lose a series of arguments, you know what happens? You start resenting the other person. So... There's a concept where you can win the battle, but you lose the war. What's the war, so to speak? What's the greater goal? The greater goal is that the oneness of Hashem should be revealed, right? That we should embrace the ultimate truth that exists in the world. that's That's the greater goal. But if you do it by snuffing out the light of another person or clipping their wings or whatever it is, maybe you out-argumented them, you know, or you know, whatever. Maybe you won the argument, but then they don't feel good. Do you understand? Because they feel coerced. And when you feel coerced into doing something, you don't want to do it. Why would you want to do it? Anytime you pressure something, someone to do something that they don't want to do. It creates negativity. So again, the idea is to inspire people to want to make that choice for themselves. That is the path that is long-lasting. That's what builds the foundation of the world. So if you share your truth and you say, this is what I believe, and you can actually articulate you know, a, 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 a case for why that makes sense, and then you leave it up to the other person. The other person then has the room and the dignity to work with that, and maybe even to accept it and strive toward it on their own. That's success. You know, I once heard that a, the, the best type of business deal from the Torah perspective, is where both parties leave the business deal feeling good. You know what I mean? It's not like the best business deal is wow, I made this staggering profit, and <laughs> that sucker, whoo, I got him. That is not, that is not by the Torah's idea the best business deal. But one person profited exorbitantly. No, both sides have to leave the deal feeling good and if it's true about the transaction of money how much more so is it true about the transaction of truth itself i'll I'll never forget i i had a couple over years and years ago and you know it was it was it was friday night and it was time to wash for bread and not everyone who's you know hasn't been to a, you know, a traditional Shabbos table is, is, is necessarily familiar with that, like how you wash and things like that. And so, so you know, we, we went to the kitchen and there was this couple. And since the I knew the man, he was a friend of mine. So, you know, I told him, take off your ring, your wedding ring, because the idea is that when you wash for bread, you don't want any kind of separation between the water and your skin. So you take off your ring and you wash and that, that's, that's what it is. And I don't know who was sort of like showing his wife what to do, but whatever it is. So then we sit down back at the table and he looks to his wife and he sees that his wife didn't take off her ring. And he says, you didn't take off your ring? And I'm thinking to myself, this guy knows one thing and he's using it to hit his wife over the head with, you know? He knows one thing. So this is the temptation that when one has truth, not to be obnoxious about it, or, or the way Reb Shlomo would put it, not, not to bite each other, not to bite each other with it. Reb Shlomo was, was, was quite amazing, and, and he was so, such an inspiring presence that, that he had the unique ability to do this. But he never told anyone what to do. You know, he would go from city to city, from whatever, around the world. You know, in in a week, he could be in five different countries. In a a month, he could be on several different continents. And that was average for decades, that, that, that was. And what he would do is he would inspire you, and then he would leave it up to you, what are you going to do with that inspiration? Now, I don't know if that's the ultimate ideal because people do need regular learning and they need more structure. They do need that. They do need that, you know? Like at a certain point, if you decide that you want to do something with this inspiration, it's hard to do it on your own. And so you do need some level of structure. But at the same time, not to play a trip on each other. Now, let me add one thing, and I think that this is a very, very important thing. When you're talking about something meaningful with someone else, and they have a very different opinion, it's very easy for argumentation to arise. Mm -hmm. Very, very easy. Extremely easy. But if you understand the things that we're talking about today, you'll understand this next point, which is... You personally have to take responsibility to know the difference between truth and ego. Because a lot of times when argumentation starts, what's really on the line is my ego against your ego. And I want to win this fight because I want to be right. Not because it is right, but because I want to be right. And the problem is, is that these things get so mixed together that there's a certain part of you that is saying, it is right. And there's another part of you that's saying, I want to be right. And they mix together in this really toxic cocktail. Okay? Now, let me tell you what this goes back to. Nothing less than eating from the tree of knowledge itself. Now, listen to this. The tree of knowledge has a fuller name. We usually just call it the Eitz and that's the end of it. But that's shorthand. If you look in the Torah, the full name is the Eitz Tov V'ra, good and bad, The, 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 the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So that sounds pretty definitive. Good and evil sounds pretty definitive. Except the Rambam says, before we ate from the tree of good and evil, Guess what existed in the world? Truth and falsehood. And truth and falsehood is like black and white. Good and evil is a gray area. Why? Why? It sounds pretty definitive, good and evil. Let me tell you why it's a gray area. Because what's good for me isn't necessarily good for you. (laughs) And what's evil for you isn't necessarily evil for me. And now, all of a sudden, after we eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, morality becomes relativistic. Moral relativism. Which is, is it, is it the right thing to do? It depends. Is it true? It depends. Remember we said truth is not subject to a vote? It's not. That's That's correct. So now, after we eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, truth and falsehood devolves into the relativistic good and evil, where it's a gray area. What's good for me isn't necessarily good for you. What's evil for you isn't necessarily evil for me. And now everything becomes muddy and confused. And that's why I can have an argument with someone where I'm really arguing about the truth, but you know what? I'm also really arguing at the same time that I want to be right because my ego is on the line right now and I have to show that I'm smarter and better than you. So don't get into arguments. Especially when it's something as as, as precious as the truth. You know? Can you imagine you've got like this like, I don't know, Ming Vaz, right? Like this... <laughs> thousands of years old or whatever the age of those things are and they're priceless and you're 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 in a museum and someone is on the other side of this big room looking at some awesome painting and you're like yo you got to check out this vase and you pick it up off the pedestal and you throw it across the room <laughs> like when you're in the presence of like beauty right? And history and authenticity. You're very, very careful around it. So it should be when you're speaking words of truth, there has to be a level of yira and respect. And if you have that yira and respect, when you're discussing truth, you're not going to dare throw it across the room. In other words, you're not going to dare allow anger to become part of your presentation. I was having coffee with an old friend a couple of weeks ago. And they were telling me just this very sad tale about how they don't get along with their kid and their kid accuses them of being just a a, a horrible parent and telling the parent, my friend, I hate you and all the rest. I mean, you know, just every nightmare scenario, right? And I said... You know we were just kind of talking about it and i said well you know you can't allow your kid to say things like that to you you have to say something back and they said to me i do and then they looked to me and they said and after i do then what and without even thinking i said wait five years <laughs> And I, I, I've been thinking about that answer ever since. I sort of shocked myself with that answer. I didn't even think about it. It just kind of came out of my mouth. But I think there's something to it, you know? Like, you know, when you have these discussions with people, don't expect this instant change on the spot. Maybe it'll come. But you have to, you have to give the other person the dignity and the room to work with it. And so so that's the idea. That's the idea. Remember, Moshe is truth. Aaron is shalom. And even when they had the most epic collision with each other over the golden calf, right? Truth and peace never stop being best friends. Truth never goes away. But let's make truth shine in people's eyes by showing what it means to connect with it. I'll just end with a personal story. When I, as you know, I didn't grow up keeping Shabbos or any of these things. And when, actually, when I went out to write for television out in Hollywood, I started down. The path of Torah Judaism in a serious way. I grew up with parts of it. When I was 14, I started going to Reb Shlomo's Reb Shlomo Karlovak Shul, which was across the street from my house. And but the congregation we were raised in was Reform, and uh, so I'm familiar with all the different branches of Judaism. By the way, Reform, Conservative, Orthodox, Hasidic—none of these words are in the Torah. You should know that. <laughs> it, none of them are. Okay, so these are all sociological, anthropological terms that entered into our history along the way, right? We just have what we got at Mount Sinai. That, that's all we have. And and while I was, I remember, like, I started calling my parents. My parents were always very sad that I never called them, like when I was in college and things like that, and I never really called them. And now, before Shabbos, Every week from my office, I was calling them. And they'd say, so do you have any plans for the weekend? And I'm, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to go to this rabbi's house for dinner. And then the next week they asked me, yeah, what do you got? Yeah, I'm going to go to this rabbi's house. And they're like, huh, you seem to be going to a lot of rabbi's houses. <laughs> like we we're not entirely sure how we feel about this. And they, you know, there was some nervousness there. And then over time, they realized that I was a better son to them because I was trying my best to keep the Torah. And when they realized that it was making me into a better son, they were like, okay, this is good. And then they became very, very supportive. And so ultimately, the greatest case that you can make for the Torah is not by mastering some series of arguments, but it's into making yourself into a beautiful person. And if you yourself start shining, that's going to get reflected and shine into the other person's heart like nothing else. So if you are beautiful, then truth and peace can be best friends. Thanks for listening.